Amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to 1 Kings chapter 19. If you have your worship guide with you, the entire text will be there in your worship guide if you would prefer to use it. Those of you that were at our outdoor services know that we have moved from the book of Genesis into the book of Titus. And we've had about six or eight weeks that we've been in that book. We are taking a break from the book of Titus this week. Uh, We're doing that for a few reasons, one of them being that it is a special Sunday for us. It's meaningful to us to be back home and to be able to see each other, not through car windshields or through a long distance outside, but to be near again in this way. Also because we're at really a natural break in the book of Titus. The messages so far have been about church leadership, and the messages going forward will be about how every Christian can live in a way that honors Jesus and blesses the church. But neither of those is the main reason that we're doing this today. The main reason is that we are in a season in which we all need special pastoral care from the Lord himself. Our deacons have modeled that in many ways, reaching out to you more often than they usually do. I've done my best to model that as well. This morning, we are going to look at a text where one of the main characters feels almost everything that many of us in this room right now are feeling as we go through this season. Here's what I mean. When I talk with folks, uh, we get all kinds of different perspectives about what's going on, especially when it comes to opinions, right? You can hear very different opinions about what's going on right now. And it's affecting people in different ways, but there is one theme for almost every, probably 90% of the people I talk to would say that they are tired, they are weary in this season. And I bet that is true for most of you as well. I talk sometimes to people who have had great disruption in their lives because everything has gone on, right? You've had to move or someone in your family has had to move into your house or you're working more hours or fewer hours or you've lost your job or some great disruption into your habits and your routine has happened. Not to mention the great disruption we all had during the lockdown phase in in March, April, and in May. We didn't expect that to go on for as long as it did. And when stuff like that extends on, you wind up tired. You wind up weary, thinking, man, when is this going to is this going to end? Others of you feel lonely and isolated, or perhaps are lonely and isolated during this season. Some of us felt socially distant before this whole thing ever happened. And then we were forced to socially distance, and that made it even worse. Others of us were enjoying sweet friendships, and now we can't go see our friends. We can't go see our loved ones. And uh, many of us are just simply left alone during phases like this. I have gotten to make one nursing home visit in the last six months. One time I was allowed in a nursing home. And we have a whole lot more than one person in our church in nursing homes. There's a whole lot of people who are just confined to their beds right now and are alone. And many of you don't get to go many places and are glad to be here right now. After a while, that can wear on you. You can become tired and weary. In a very different way, Some of you look back at a season of explosive growth in our church and the expectations that that created. We thought we were going to be rocking and rolling forever, right? Win after win. And then we had a decade of great setback. And then last year, some more great hope. And then now this setback as well from the virus. And that can leave you worn out. You get get hit like that enough times with enough of those waves as we have had it in our church history. And you can be left rather tired. Others of you express fear that a few powerful people in the government are out to get you. And it's many different kinds of people who feel this way, not just people like us, people very different from us feel the same way that there are powerful people 
who are out to get them. And then a precious few of you have told me that despite how difficult the season is, you're pleasantly surprised to find that God is still very present in your life. One person said to me about a week ago, I really thought this was going to be a season where I was distant from God, but he's been so near to me, and I thank God for that. I thank God that a few of you are going to go through that. Well, if you feel any of those things, what we're going to read today speaks to all of them, because the character in the story, if you believe it or not, felt all of those things at the same time. I pray that what we read will help you see and receive God's work in your heart during a difficult season like this. I pray that he will use this story to initiate reaching out to you, telling you his heart for people who are weary like you are right now. So we're going to read 1 Kings 19. I will tell you the backstory before we do. Elijah has just won a great victory after a string over a number of pretty good victories. This would be like four or five playoff wins in a row and then winning the Super Bowl is kind of what he's been experiencing. Great miracles God had done. He prayed it wouldn't rain for three years. It didn't rain for three years. Lots of miraculous provisions of food and taking care of widows and all kinds of awesome stuff that shows how great God is. And all of this just builds up to this great confrontation on a mountain where all the false gods, all the people who are worshiping false gods, the false god of Baal, he challenges them and says, your God's not real, the Lord is real. So why don't you build an altar to your God and I'll build an altar to my God and the real God will answer in fire. So they accept his challenge, they build an altar, they pray to their God Baal that he would come down in fire and he does it. And they start wailing and they start cutting themselves. They do everything they can to summon their God to come down and he won't come down. And then Elijah has the altar built to the Lord drenched in water so that it would just be humanly impossible to light this thing on fire. And he calls to God in heaven and says, God, show them that you are the real God once and for all. Consume this altar in fire. And fire comes down in front of everybody. And the hearts of Israel appear turned. And he says, let's slay these false prophets. And the people go after them and slay all the false prophets of Baal. So Elijah is expecting that he has turned the tide. And Israel's about to experience a great revival. Perhaps even King Ahab and his wife, Queen Jezebel, will repent and turn to the Lord. Because they've seen that he's real and the gods they worship are not real. Well, here's what actually happens. Chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And then he was afraid. And he arose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under the broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there is at his head a cake baked with hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank, and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank. And he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, to the Mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. 
And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek to, my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out, and he stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go and return to your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you will anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall appoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. The words of the Lord. What God gives us in these words is a glimpse into his heart toward those who feel the way that many of you feel right now. A glimpse into God's heart toward the weary. And if you are weary, I believe the Lord through it means to refresh you, to encourage you, to let you see how he is working in your life and receive the way that he is working in your life. If you are one of the few who is not tired during this season, then the Lord means to equip you with how you can bless those who are weary, who are around you. We're going to look at this story in two ways, in two parts. First, we'll look at how Elijah felt. And we'll see how much of that we can identify with. And then after that, we'll look at how God deals with Elijah, how he ministers to him and reaches out to him. And we will see there his heart toward anybody who feels like Elijah felt there. First thing Elijah felt, he felt fear. He was afraid because at least one, really two, very powerful people were after him. You can see this in verses 3 and 4. I'm sorry, it's in verses 2 and 3. Jezebel, the wicked queen, the wicked wife of the king who worships false gods, she sends a messenger to Elijah and basically says, I'm going to kill you within 24 hours. Now, it's important what she does here. She's perhaps the most powerful woman in the world, one of the most powerful people in the world. If she wanted to kill him, she wouldn't have sent a messenger saying, I'm going to kill you. She would have sent somebody to kill him, right? So what's her move here? What's she doing? She's intimidating him. 
She wants him to stop ministering for the Lord because he is afraid. She's seen what he's capable of. She says, I'm going to scare him into the wilderness, into oblivion, where he can do nothing for his God. Then that God will be powerless without him. And so she begins to intimidate him. She sends this message to him. And we see in verse 3 that it works. She wants him to be afraid. And in verse 3 we see, then he was afraid. And he ran for his life, and he came to Beersheba. That's on the border. That's on the edge. So Elijah's afraid. He believes, and in some ways has good reason to believe, that a powerful person in the government is after him. And I don't know about you, but I talk to a lot of people, very different types of people, who feel the same way. When we talk about politics now, there is one consistent theme at least, and that is fear. Many Christians fear that powerful people in our media elite, powerful people in our government are after the church. And if once they are let loose, they are going to come after the church. But it's not just Christians who feel this way. I used to live in a rural area that had a number of factories and a number of factory workers. And many factory workers fear that people in the government are out not to put good regulations on factories to help the earth and all the things that you hear, but they are out to hurt the working class, to hurt the factory workers, to put undue burdens on them and on the factories so that they would lose their job. And many people in the working class who fear that the government is after them and after their job. We also talk to many black Americans who are afraid that forces in the police departments and forces in the government are after them in a spirit of racism. And I could go on and on. There are all sorts of different people, not just people like us, but people very different from us who are afraid right now that people in the government are after them. Because after all, there are a lot of different people in the government with a lot of different agendas. And many of these people have good reason to be afraid of powerful forces who may very well be after them. Well, all of us have a friend in Elijah in this way. There he is in fear. The king and queen mean to kill him. And so he is running for his life. That's the first thing Elijah felt, fear. Powerful people were after him. If you feel that, you have a friend here in Elijah. Elijah also felt the despair that comes from unmet expectations. He thought that God was about to bring revival to Israel through him. Right? I mean, he was rocking and rolling over and over. And finally, that great showdown with Baal. And he's, he's got to be thinking, man, God is about to call Israel back to faithfulness through me. This is so awesome. And indeed, the prophet's job was to call Israel back to the covenant that God had made with him. You can read that covenant in Deuteronomy. The prophet's job was to call them back to it. The people would go astray. Prophets would rise up and say, come back. Right? King David goes astray with Bathsheba and Uriah. And Nathan comes to him and calls him back to covenant faithfulness. That's what they do over and over again. But the truth is, most of them, though they did it faithfully, they didn't do it successfully. They would stand. They would preach. They would be mocked. They would be persecuted. And Israel would slide further into faithlessness. But Elijah's seeing good results, and he's thinking, man, I wonder if I'm the one that's going to get to call Israel back to faithfulness. And then he sees that after his great victory, the king and queen are still after him. The people don't seem to care, and he feels as though he is the only one left. 
So when he cries out to God, he doesn't say, God help me, God be near to me in this hour of trial. He asks God that he could die. He is at rock bottom. And his only request to God is, just go ahead and kill me. Because what use is there for me continuing on? This is the depths of despair. I want to point out real quick the contradiction between what he's doing and what he is saying. Because some of us have these kind of contradictions in our hearts when we are in despair. And I want you to see that you're not crazy. You're not the only one that feels that way. Elijah is running for his life to protect his life, right? There is no boldness that is standing up to Jezebel saying, the Lord will protect me. And if you slay me, that is just fine. That boldness is gone, right? Protecting his life. And yet at the same time, his despair is so deep that he asks God to end his life. Complete contradiction. And if we're honest, we do that when we're in despair too, don't we? We just walk around with all sorts of contradictions and we usually don't even notice them. Well, if you've ever done that, you've got a friend here in Elijah who is doing the same thing at the end of his rope at rock bottom in his life, running for his life in fear on one hand and also in despair asking God to end his life. There are some who may be able to relate with this. There are some who may fear that God is not working right now in our country. That maybe we aren't the ones who will bring Greenwood and Indy to faithfulness before the Lord. Maybe this isn't the generation that will turn the United States back to faithfulness, back to some of the good ways that we were walking in. And there can be a despair that comes along with that when you watch your country slip further and further into immorality and you wonder, are we any better than our fathers? Are we really what it takes to turn the country around, to turn the church around, to turn the evangelical world around as we watch our heroes fall into immorality and into pride and into bullying and as we watch other heroes fall into apostasy and make YouTube videos about it? Some of you might be tempted to the same sort of despair that Elijah feels here right now. And if that is you, there's no point in denying those feelings. Instead, find a friend here in Elijah who feels those things as well. Another thing Elijah feels is distress over the unfaithfulness of God's people. And this is kind of connected to what I mentioned a moment ago. Uh, we watch so many churches make terrible decisions. So many leaders that we used to look up to and respect fall before our eyes. Sometimes we turn around and look at fellow church members at points in the church's history and say, oh, we thought they were the real deal and they turned out not to be the real deal and we're heartbroken. And sometimes we can be left feeling like Elijah, who says in verse 10 and then again in verse 14, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek to take my life, to take it away. Now, God is going to correct that later. But that doesn't change the fact that some of us can feel that way at some times as well. And if you feel that way, you've got a friend in Elijah. And lastly, Elijah felt alone and in fact was alone. He went out into the wilderness and then left his servant and went out another day into the wilderness. Right? So he's on the edge and then he's out all alone. No one to feed him. No one to care for him. He is completely alone. Now he feels lonely because he thinks the rest of Israel is unfaithful. That may not be why you feel lonely. Some of you feel lonely because you're literally isolated. You can't leave your house much. You can't see your friends much. Social contacts are starting to dwindle and, and scatter. And it's just a difficult season. And so some of you have a friend in Elijah who could feel like I am alone out here. 
I feel like I am the only one who is left. Now the point of that is that there's probably something there you can relate to in this season. Uh, With each of those things, I think there's probably somebody in the room who's feeling that way. Uh, I doubt there might be anybody who feels all of them. So there are probably points as I went through that, some points where you're saying, yeah, I feel that way. And other parts where you're feeling, yeah, that's not really me. I don't really feel that right now. Whatever of that you feel, whether it's the despair of unmet expectations or fear or loneliness or distress over the unfaithfulness you see, whatever you feel, just lay hold of that, claim that as yours and see it here in Elijah. Because what we'll do next is we'll look at how God deals with Elijah. And in that, we can see his heart toward those feelings and toward us when we feel those things. The big question that we ask when we feel that way is, is God really who I thought he was? 2020 is not like we thought it was going to be. The church right now does not look like we thought it would look. What is this blue tape that is everywhere? We didn't expect this to be going on. If I'm honest, I entered into 2020 thinking that the growth that we had last year as a church, we'd have just the same or more growth again, and by this time, we'd have much more full sanctuary. That's what I thought going into 2021. Instead, we've had great setback from this virus. It has hindered so much of the work that we have tried to do. Your life probably does not look like the way you wanted it to look right now. When everything's upside down and things are not how you thought they would be, is God who you thought he was? Or you might ask it, is God still who he says he is? Or if you're really honest, you might ask, can I still trust him when there's no other constant in my life that it seems like I can trust? And the rest of the story is God's answer to that question. So we just funnel everything so far into that one question. When everything is changing, is God still the same? Is he still who I thought he was? Let's look at what God does to Elijah and find the answer. First thing I want you to see comes in verse 5, and that is that God takes initiative to reach out to Elijah. God is, well, I'm sorry, Elijah is not seeking God for counsel. He is not crying out to God for help like the psalmists do. His words to God are just kill me, right? He's in despair. He's not taking initiative to get help from God in this hour. But what does God do? God takes initiative, and in verse 5, he sends an angel, that is, a messenger, to touch him and to speak to him. Jezebel has taken initiative and sent her messenger. Now the Lord will take initiative and send his messenger, his angel, to Elijah, who will physically touch him and say, Arise and eat. Elijah says, I am ready to die. And God says, Here is some food. Arise and eat. What I want you to see there is a God that takes initiative to care for his people who are in despair. Even his people who don't reach out to him when they are in despair. And this is so close to God's heart. It is so beautiful because it is who he is. He is the kind of shepherd that leaves the 99 behind and goes after the one who is astray. When that one sheep is not saying, hey, come after me, come. Nope. He just goes and takes initiative and grabs that sheep to bring him back. He is the one of whom it is said a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He is the one that composed this word for us 
when none of us were saying, oh God, would you write down all of your words so that we could read them and seek him? We weren't asking, we were rebelling against his word. And he said, I'll take initiative. I will write my words in a book and I will make it freely available to them. He is the one who took initiative to send his own son to seek and save the lost. He knew that we were just going to reject this son. He knew that we were going to murder his son. And when we're in that state, he says, I'll take initiative. I will go get them. I will bring them back. And when they rebel against him, I will give them a new heart that will make them turn back to me and will make them walk in my ways. This is the way that he reaches out to his people. He took initiative in your life to bring you back to him, to give you a new heart that longs to follow his ways if you are one of his, to turn you from sin toward the gospel so that you would receive it. He took initiative to bring a preacher into your life to proclaim the gospel to you and to write it here into this word to you. He has done so much to take initiative and none of it was your idea. He was there in heaven reaching out to you when you were at rock bottom. And friend, he still does the same thing to you today. If you are at rock bottom, he reaches out to you because he cares for you. You can even see this, not just in the way he reached out to save you, but in the way he is ministering to you right now. Any way that you may be blessed by this worship service that we have happened at God's initiative. We, we are not doing anything here today that was our idea gathering together on the Lord's day. There was not a day when the church said, hey, we have an idea, let's start getting together and worshiping Jesus on Sunday. No, the Lord called us to do that. Praying together, asking God for what we need. That wasn't our idea. God calls that forth from us. Singing together, the way that we are ministered to and we admonish each other with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There was not some bishop in the third century who thought, you know what would really make our gatherings great? Let's put congregational song in there. No, the Lord said, sing to the Lord a new song with a new heart, right? Admonish one another with songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Even a sermon that is grounded on the word of God is not a human idea. The Bible says, preach the word. I charge you, pastors, preach the word. All the ways God is serving you right now, none of them were our idea. They're all his idea. They're all ways that he takes initiative and reaches out to you in the same way that he did to Elijah. So church, see that. See that if you are wherever you are right now, he reaches his hand to you to care for you through the gathered people who will soon rise and sing around you in your presence. He reaches to you through this very word that he has written today. He has for Elijah four messages. And these four messages are so close to God's heart that they are true for you as well if you feel anything like what Elijah felt. First message God has for Elijah is very simple. It is, I have not changed. I am still the same. We see this in a really neat storytelling move that this writer pulls. If you're familiar much with the stories of Elijah, you know some of the other things that happened to him. God once provided for him miraculously in the wilderness through ravens that brought him food. And there's a very neat story in chapter 17 where God provided for him and for a widow uh, through a jar that never ran out of oil. This is this widow's last jar of oil, but it never ran out of oil and God was able to provide greatly for them. If you would, flip back in your Bibles to chapter 17 
And I just want to read verses 13 and 14. I want to read them because I want you to notice two words that are in there. Two words that aren't used often in the Bible, but are used there. In the middle of this story, when God is, is caring for this widow in this house who's lost everything, he says, Elijah said to her, do not fear and go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake. Notice the word cake. Make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. That's of the oil. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord of Israel, the jar, remember the word jar too, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she goes and she does that. Okay, so there's a cake there and there's a jar there. The words cake and jar are not the most common words in the Bible. You might be able to think of a few places where there's a cake or a jar that pop up, but when they're really close to each other and the same author uses them, he's trying to make a connection here. Okay, now let's zoom back to chapter 19 to today's chapter and look at verse 6 with me. Okay, after the angel wakes Elijah, tells him to rise and eat, it says, And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked with hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank. This is a subtle storytelling that this author is doing to point out similarities in the way that God ministered to and through Elijah. It's there to make a Hebrew reader say, ah, he's doing the cake and jar thing again. Ah, I see that. One subtle way of saying, I am just the same as I was before. Look at this consistency and how I am operating, how I operated then and how I do it now. I do it as a sign that I am the same God that I was, that I am working just as powerfully as I was working then. And when everything around you has changed, Elijah, nothing about me has changed. You can still rely on me to care for you, to provide for you, even to feed you out here in the wilderness like I did before. That is true for us as well. Your circumstances right now are probably different than they were a year ago. And you probably feel things right now that you did not feel a year ago. The message of God to you from that very point right there is that He has not changed. He is still the same. If your surroundings cause you to doubt His goodness to you, no friend, He is just the same. And He has not changed at all. That is the first message God has for Elijah. He has not changed. Second message comes later in verses 11 through 13. And this message is, what you need, Elijah, is a glimpse of my glory. That is what will satisfy you. Verse 11 says, and he said, that is God said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke it to pieces in the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after that, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him. So what God is doing here, he takes Elijah up to this mountain. And if you know your Old Testament really well, you might notice this is the same mountain that Moses went up to where he saw the glory of the Lord. God revealed his glory to Moses on this mountain. And not only that, but he goes into a cave. And Moses went into a cave 
in that story as well. And in fact, the original, the Hebrew actually, in kind of a strange way, says the cave instead of a cave when you would expect it to say a cave. So a little hint that maybe it's even the same cave. Either way, there is enough to make us look back to that day when God takes Moses up the same mountain and reveals his glory to him. God will do it again, this time to Elijah, and this time in a way that is just a little bit different. So notice God's therapy for him here. Elijah has questions, he has complaints, he wants answers, he wants solutions, and God says, I will give you none of those things, I will show you my glory. That is my therapy for you, Elijah. This kind of hits us where a lot of us are weak. We have this tendency, all of us, I think, when we are in distress, we want answers to our questions, and we want solutions to our problems. Some husbands are so much like this that when their wives are in, I should say when our wives, because I do this, when our wives are in distress, we will hear them complain and then cut them off because, hey, we've got the answer and the solution. So I'm going to go ahead and shout, hey, let's try to find a solution and an answer to everything that is distressing you, dear. And that's not what she wants, is it? She wants you. She wants you to listen to her and hear her complaint. Because the presence of someone who loves you is more profound than answers to your questions or solutions to your problems. Well, that goes deeper than just little husband and wife uh, interactions like that. That's deep in all of our hearts. We're in distress before God, and we're like, God, answer my questions. God, what's going on here? God, will you solve this great problem that is in my life? When the truth is, if God were to bring immediate solutions and immediate answers, you wouldn't be ultimately satisfied, because tomorrow you would just have more questions and more problems. And so what God gives to his people to sustain us through dark seasons and to enrich our life in good seasons is his very presence. It is a glimpse of his glory. And that is the balm that your heart needs. Point is, you don't need answers and you don't need solutions. You need to see the glory of God. This is just what God does for Elijah. He reveals his glory to Elijah. And then Elijah knows he is so deep in the glory of God that he must wrap his face in his cloak. He's basically taking off his jacket, his hoodie, and wrapping his face with it. Because he knows that if he were to just catch a glimpse of it, even with his cheeks and his forehead, the glory of God would kill him. Never mind if he opened his eyes and actually saw the full glory of God, he would be dead in an instant. And he knows that God's glory is that arresting. But there he is. Can you imagine standing out there and it's pitch black because your face is covered with a garment multiple wraps around probably knowing that the glory of God surrounds you so potently that it could kill you if you were to see it this is a hundred times greater than being at the zoo and having a glass pane between you and a majestic lion as you look it right in the eye and you know If it weren't for this glass pane, all it would have to do is, and I would be done. There's something glorious and arresting about that moment. To be face-to-face with the glory of God is infinitely more majestic even than that. And the point here is that that is what your soul needs in despair. Glimpses of the glory of God. We will all be there one day. We will all be as deep in God's glory as Elijah was on that day. 
Some of us in the fullness of joy before him. Some of us in the fullness of terror before him if we continue to live as his enemies. We will be there. Right now, what you need are glimpses into that glory. Right now, what you need is to watch the sun go down tonight and see whatever picture God paints in the sky tonight, knowing it will never be that way again and the next sunset won't look like that. And know that God, our maker, painted that he is glorious. What you need is to scour the pages of this book and every time you see him part the Red Sea and raise Lazarus to life and provide miraculously for his people in every battle that is won, see the glory of God there on the page. Be amazed and worship him. That is the balm that your weary heart needs. Glimpses into the glory of God. So friends, seek them. If you're weary today, seek God's glory. Seek it when we rise in a few moments and sing together. It will be there. God's third message to Elijah is, I work in the modest and in the humble. It comes from the same verses, particularly in the way that God reveals his glory to Elijah. Now remember, Elijah has seen God work spectacularly, right? He saw miracle after miracle, the rain, right? The fire thing on Mount Carmel, all this awesome stuff that he saw. And he's a lot like us. He sees God work in spectacle like this and he gets kind of hooked on it. And he starts to think that if amazing things aren't happening, then God must not be working. And we do the same thing too, right? We go to a conference, we have a great time, we're fired up and we come back and we crash because real life isn't like that. And what are we going to do with that? We have a great season of explosive growth in the church and many baptized. And then we expect that that's going to carry on forever. And what do we do when things fall back to earth? We do the same thing. It's in our hearts too. We want the spectacular. And God loves to work through the spectacular. But sometimes we trick ourselves into thinking that is the only way that God works. Elijah's right there. And that's why he is so down. That is why he is so in despair. And so God chooses to reveal his glory to him. Not in the wind that tears the mountains and splits the rocks. Now... I grew up in Florida in hurricane land, and I have seen wind break a cypress tree. I've never seen wind split mountains, tear mountains, and split rocks. Never seen wind that can do that. I doubt you have either. And in that amazing sight, God's not there. And then in an earthquake, can you imagine Elijah being there in this cave when everything is shaking and what terror and glory is around? What a spectacle. God's not there. And then a fire that sweeps through. We have been amazed at fires that happen out west. God is not there either. Where is God? He's in a humble whisper. This is how he says to Elijah, yes, I work through spectacles, but I am there in the humble and modest as well. He was here last night when there were only a handful of at-risk people here in this room and the word of God was preached. He was here working in that modest moment. There are volunteers right now working with the children of the handful of parents who are ready to bring their kids back to church. It's modest. It's humble what's going on back there. God is there. He is working through that. God chooses to work through a meek and average preacher, through meek and average worship teams, through meek and average churches all the time. He worked through us when we were meeting in a storefront and in a kindergarten classroom. And yes, also when things were rocking and rolling and we built this fantastic building that we have. He works in the great and spectacular. He says here, don't forget church, I work through the modest and through the humble as well. 
I am just as present there. Church, let us not fall to the myth that God only works through the spectacular. Let us seek his presence in the good and in the humble as well. One last message God has for Elijah, it is, you still have work to do. He has that message for us as well. I have laughed many times this week at God's bedside manner counseling Elijah here. Essentially, Elijah pours out his heart, right? I've read it a few times. In despair, they're seeking my life to take it away. They're unfaithful. It cries out like this. And God's response is, okay, that's great. Uh, Go anoint a new king in Syria and then a new king in Israel. And then after that, go appoint your successor. No words of counsel other than, I need you to get back on your feet and I need you to do some things. Can you imagine? I've tried to imagine this all week and I just can't. Try to imagine someone coming into a pastor's office for pastoral counseling and just pouring their heart out about everything that is going wrong. They're at a breaking point. They're in despair. They spend 15 minutes in monologue telling the pastor all about it. And the pastor says, well, that's great. We need some help in the kids' wing. Do you mind volunteering in the kids' wing? Insensitive pastor of the decade award goes to that guy, right? But God can get away with doing this. Why can God get away with that? Well, because he knows what Elijah needs. Elijah's in despair, partly because he thinks that God is done working through him. And so to encourage him, he says to him, I've got more work for you to do. Here it is. Get up, go and do this. And by the way, here is how I will work through all of this. With their sword, they will purify Israel. Elijah, I still have work for you to do. The point there for us is that unexpected weariness has not stopped God from working, and it has not even stopped God from working through you individually. If this season has left you weary, wondering, does God even intend to do anything through all of this work that I'm doing? The answer is yes. He is not done with you. You will know when he is done with you because he will take you home or he will send his son to return. At that moment, he's done with this form of ministry as we know it. Until then, he still has work for us to do. In formal ministry, in our lives every day, he has work to do through us. I'll tell you a story of a dear woman who is now home with the Lord. Her name is Emma Alley. Uh, I had the, the privilege of being her pastor. And you always say it's a privilege to pastor somebody. So there are some times where that's especially true because it's such a dear person. And she was one of those people. She was elderly. She'd been a widow for a long time. Every time I visited her, I felt like she was encouraging me. And who knows if I was doing anything for her. Such a wonderful person. She was brought into a hospital toward the end of her life, and we thought it was going to be the end of her life. It didn't turn out to be. Uh, There she is on a bed where she thinks she will probably die on this bed. And before I go to visit her, I call her and I ask her, hey, how's how's it going, Emma? How are things in there? And now she thinks she's going to die in this bed that she's in. And she says, oh, it's going great. I've shared the gospel with two nurses and I got to invite our doctor to church. Here's the doctor's name. If he ever comes, you tell him you know me. If you ever see him, and he comes. She couldn't stop talking about all the work that God was doing through her on a bed that she thought would be her deathbed. God was not done with her and she knew it. She was still proclaiming the gospel to friends. As it were, in God's kindness, she rose out of that bed, lived a few more years before the Lord took her home. But she lives on in my heart as a reminder that the day that I retire from ministry, he's not done with me. And the day that I can't get up and walk anymore, he is not done with me. If I have breath and a voice, he will work through each and every one of us as much as he pleases to. Let's continue to work for him and to be faithful to him no matter what. 
For to summarize this whole message, here it is. When everything changes, and it feels like God has changed, He does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Your world may be turned upside down right now. There's one thing still right side up. The rock that you stand on. So I call you right now, church. Put your faith on that rock of Jesus Christ. Trust him. Cling to that rock that is higher than us. And you will find that when the, way, when the rains fall and the winds blow and beat against the house, the house does not fall if it is built upon the rock. Place your trust in Jesus Christ, I call you. Let's pray together.